Hello and welcome to the Sheldrake Vernon Dialogues with myself, Mark Vernon and Rupert Sheldrake. Hi Rupert. Hello Mark. We are recording via Zoom because the lockdown is still in place in the UK where we're speaking from and hope today to speak about a new book called The Flip by Geoffrey Kripal. Um, Jeff Kripal is a professor at Rice University. He has uh, written extensively about a range of phenomena from NDEs, um, UFOs, religious ecstasy. And this new book um, is, I think, the first of a kind of mass market book published by Penguin in the UK um, that may reach a far wider audience because of that. Um, it summarizes a lot of his ideas, um, but brings them together in a persuasive package. And so we wondered about talking about it um, just to see whether we sense, well, partly what it's saying, of course, but I mean, Rupert, do you think this book produced in this way, you know, from a scholar um, who's, you know, a tenured professor, as it were, and so on, with a, a, a good track record in this area, maybe from even because he, he works in the domain of psychology as well. Um, I mean, do you, does it feel like a kind of compelling package in the culture wars, you might say, like it might even make a bit of a difference? I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I think it's, it's popularly written, slightly too popularly written for my taste. I mean, it has the kind of slightly patronising popular writing style. Uh, that, um, and he's a serious scholar, and it, it is a work of scholarship. Um, whether or not it will reach lots of people, I don't know. But it's, what he does do is bring together... Um, examples from people's personal conversion experiences it's i mean as the word the flip the title implies it's really about the shift in worldview from sort of secular materialist uh, reductionist mechanistic worldview to a view in which consciousness is if not primary at least something that works through the brain rather than being something just produced by the brain um, and I think that that's certainly a major paradigm shift that's going on now. And I think his book, I personally found it a slightly confused way, is giving examples of how eminent individuals, including eminent scientists and philosophers, have undergone this kind of conversion experience and how this is working its way through our culture. I think that's very important. I think the other thing he's doing is something that I'm keen on myself in my two most recent books about spiritual practices, um, showing that uh, underlying the various religious traditions are kind of mystical experiences, experiences that are transformative in their effects, um, and that what changes people's worldview much more than logical argument in seminar rooms is personal experience. Um, now, I think he's absolutely right about those things. So I agree with what he's trying to do, basically. Um, and perhaps that's why I found the book slightly irritating here and there, because I would have done it differently myself. Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it's partly a kind of confidence-boosting um, book um, to sort of say, in a way, have the courage of your convictions, whether it be because you do the spiritual practices as you outline in your books, and it actually makes a difference to your life or whether you have the more dramatic flipped experiences that he does major on in the book, um, you know, through figures like, I don't know, Barbara Ehrenreich and Mark Twain, 
um, scientists like Einstein and Marie Curie who had an interest in these areas. Um, it's, it's partly trying to reduce the taboo around them, I guess. Mm. Um, uh, and I, I mean, I personally feel that that is really important work um, because the self-policing or the policing from, um, you know, powerful voices in the culture wars um, can never really be underestimated. Um, you know, the, people will talk about this quietly as it were to themselves or in their own rooms. But I mean, you, you've been in the public view with this for so long, sort of force propelled into the public view um, around this area, um, you know, so many years ago now. Um, and you're so gracious about it as well. Um, but, you know, for, for others, it, it takes quite a lot of courage, I think, to, to really incorporate these aspects into their lives, let alone talk about them more publicly as well. Yes, well, I, I agree. I think what he's trying to do is normalize these subjects. And one of his agendas um, is to normalize them, not just within the sciences, but within the humanities. Because one of his points is that the humanities in the academic world have been taken over by a worldview which is completely secular and sort of deconstructing everything, relativizing everything. Um, so it's not as if secular materialism is confined to a few hardcore science, scientists. It's as predominant, if not more so, in the humanities. And I think what he's trying to do is revision the role of the humanities, no doubt because they're under pressure in many universities, um, you know, often regarded as non-productive um, compared with sciences and so on. Um, it, trying to revision the role of the humanities as being um, that branch of inquiry which actually explores consciousness through the arts, through philosophy, and so on. And what he's doing is, is showing that consciousness, if it's primary or at least very, very important part of our life in the universe, which it, most people would, traditionally would have seen as obvious, but in a mechanistic materialist worldview, it's not so obvious. In fact, it's regarded as a kind of heresy. Um, he's trying to um, flip um, the academic world as well. I think that's one of his primary targets in this book, actually. He's often referring to the academy and the academic world, and particularly the humanities. Yeah, and no, I agree. He definitely wants to see um, to the humanities to, in a way, um, reassert a kind of weightier role almost. Um, I mean, I'm sure that most people in the humanities feel they're doing substantial work, but certainly from the outside in, it can feel like they've rather got caught up in epicycles of interpretation and, um, you know, speaking to themselves a bit. Um, whereas he's saying, no, 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 you're doing, we're doing substantial work for the good of humanity quite as much as science by, as you say, investigating the phenomena of life, the consciousness of life. Um, so yeah, that, and and that and that part of the book, I guess, will speak more to people uh, working in that area. Um, I mean, another, relatedly, another reason why I've actually appreciated um, his work for quite some time is that he is very keen on bringing in the psychological aspects of the wide range of psi phenomena, um, and seeing that um, you need to have a kind of reflexivity when you're trying to interpret and understand what's going on. Um, you know, so he's worked a lot, for example, with um, UFO experiences. And he's very much of um, the side that um, argues that the, these, these are real experiences. No one's doubting that. Um, but 
you're using archetypes or myths from the world in which you live, which are now very powerfully dominated by um, archetypes around extraterrestrial life. Um, you know, the new horizon is out in space for exploration. These kind of stories um, that are, are very powerful in our culture through Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever you like. Um, and saying that inevitably you use these stories to try and interpret experiences which, which, which otherwise kind of exceed your understanding. And, you know, the upshot is that people feel that numinous experiences that in the past might have been in, experienced as a kind of divine encounter are now experienced um, as an encounter with a celestial being that is interpreted as coming from another place maybe even another time. And mm. I find that very persuasive because, you know, as he's also tracked, um, particularly for his work with Whitney Schreiber, um, you know, these are extraordinarily common experiences, particularly in the US, mm. uh, where that story of life is very powerful. Um, and so trying to break the logjam between does it happen, does it not happen? by introducing this kind of third possibility, I find uh, very persuasive and, and, and a possible way forward. Yes, yes, I think it, what he's doing is, it is indeed exploring these realms of the imagination. Um, and of course, he's not, he's not only looked at that, but it, one of his, I've read a couple of his previous books. One is about the history of the Esalen Institute. So it's very much about the human potential movement and he did a biography of Michael Murphy as well who was a co-founder of the Esalen Institute. So he's explored not only these extraordinary experiences but also the whole growth of the kind of hu human potential new age spiritual but not religious phenomenon. I mean I would say that was his main area actually of exploration the spiritual but not religious. Um, and he's rather anti-religious. I, I, that's one of the things that irritated me. Um, um, as I don't if, mind that. I don't mind that element, as we've talked about before. <laughs> yes. No, I, I just find it, you know, it's just too easy. Everyone's anti-religious. So I just find that too, if you're going to be a contrarian, then being anti-religious is, is, is a boringly conventional view. Uh, it's, uh, you know, because New Age people are anti-religious, atheists are anti-religious, secularists are anti-religious, most academics are anti-religious. So it, it, it's just that side of it I found just too conventional. Um, I find it more interesting to see, uh, to find bridges between these realms. Um, so, yes, uh, I thought that he explored that area, but one of the things that I thought he created more confusion than clarity is by merging together the spiritual and the psychic. Um, because he gives examples of people who've had extraordinary psychic experiences like precognitive dreams um, or precognitive visions. Um, and I myself think that there's uh, an important distinction between the realms of the psychic and the spiritual. I mean, I do a lot of research, as you know, on things like telepathy. And I don't think telepathy is a spiritual phenomenon. Um, I think it's, a, you know, dogs, cats have it. It's a way of communicating with other members of the social group. It certainly shows the mind is more than the brain. It has that in common with spiritual phenomena. Uh, but it's, it's uh, more to do with kind of survival type relationship to 
the environment and to other members of the social group, rather than relationship to other realms of consciousness. Um, and in some cases, he gives examples of people who've undergone a flip through psychic experiences, which of course will blast one out of a, a narrowly materialist view of the brain, but uh, not necessarily into a kind of spiritual realm. Yeah, and this, it is an interesting difference. Um, I suppose I wonder quite how different they are, though. I mean, I can, I can completely understand that methodologically it's, it's useful to separate things out so that you're comparing like with like. Um, and so you can, you know, do the natural histories that you're doing and so on, as well as other investigations. Um, but I, um, well, put it this way, um, one of his, the book I, of his I actually, I think I enjoyed the most was, um, I think it was his last book called Changed in a Flash, which was co-authored with a woman called Elizabeth Crone. And she had, uh, she was struck by lightning and had a very powerful near-death experience um, that changed her life very dramatically. It both changed her personally um, in terms of uh, who she was and her convictions and the sense of meaning in life. And but also, as can happen, um, initiated a whole uh, sort of range of um, uh, psi capabilities, including things like precognitive dreams and so on. Um, and she's particularly interesting because when she started having these um, precognitive dreams in particular, she would email herself. Um, the details of the dream that then can be checked against what actually happened. So it provides some sort of uh, way of uh, trying to test these things out. You know, so in terms of pure research, it's pretty interesting. Um, but what I found really interesting about the book was that the NDE, which she describes, which she goes into in great detail, um, you know, she has a traditional experience of, uh, first of all, feeling separate from her body that is lying on the ground after the lightning strike, um, realizing there's a whole other side to reality, and then going to a place of lightness and love and so on, um, a very different state of consciousness. But she was there in the altered state for about two weeks and describes it in a lot of detail. And I read it um, being a great fan of Dante and the Divine Comedy. And in Dante and the Divine Comedy, there's a lot of implicit description about the way that things like, say, telepathy works. So Dante and Virgil in particular, and then Dante and Beatrice, constantly know what's in each other's minds. And, but it's described, for example, just to pick up on this one aspect, as because they both share in the divine mind. And so, as it were, they're able to um, see reflected in a kind of third divine um, mind or consciousness what the other person is uh, feeling or, or knowing in that moment. Um, so it's, it gives a bit of structure to, to telepathy, um, which I've always been struck by. And then Elizabeth Cohen, in, in her description, she said she realized she knew what other people were thinking or feeling because they somehow shared it um, uh, in a wider consciousness that fills the whole place. Um, so it, 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 it wasn't just a kind of one-on-one -on -one telepathy. It was a much broader sense of the mm. whole atmosphere being alive with meaning and shared communication, which you're able to then to tune into because you're connected to the individual person um, that you're with. Now, 
it feels like a detail, but it really stood out for me because, for example, Dante goes into this in quite, in quite a, a lot of detail himself at one point. And so I emailed Elizabeth Cohn and said, have you ever read Dante's Divine Comedy? And she said she hadn't. She's Jewish for one thing, but she'd never even read it. Um, and, uh, and it was just one detail amongst about half a dozen um, quite specific things <laughs> that, you know, in, in one way wouldn't prove anything, but certainly stood out for me. And going back to your point, um, it made me, it, it perhaps is a domain where what is in, in one way might well properly be called a more psi phenomena um, actually links into a more spiritual experience and the wider, even religious, um, you know, experience of life, which, for example, would be held by a kind of divine mind or a divine presence. Yes, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I, my own investigations, things like dogs that know when their owners are coming home, um, they're about something you could say has a kind of spiritual dimension, namely affection or love, but it's normally a fairly limited form. I mean, it's just straightforward personal bonds or uh, person-to-animal bonds. Um, this more spiritual dimension of telepathy and, and other psychic phenomena is, as you say, somewhere that's sort of intermediate between those realms. And since I was trying to think of experiments, as you were speaking, I was thinking, how could one test this? Um, and um, since a lot of people feel this greater sense of connection under the influence of certain psychoactive substances like MDMA, um, the, you know, there's this sense of connection, um, a much greater sense of a deeper connection. It may be, I mean, no one as far as I know has done experiments on telepathic communication under MDMA, but uh, that would be one area where one could actually experience it, uh, it look at the, the whole thing from experimentally, um, where there's this expanded sense of connection and probably also telepathy. And I felt this yesterday when um, my wife Jill and I were walking on Hampstead Heath, which... Um, looks at the moment rather like the kingdom of heaven. It's, as I imagine, the kingdom of heaven would be where people live in peace and are having a lovely time. And all over Hampstead Heath, there are little groups of people having picnics and hanging out together. And there was one group who were particularly deeply hanging out together. They were all sort of lying back. There was some dreamlike music playing and they were obviously all completely sort of bonded and stuff and Jill immediately said they've obviously been taking MDMA ecstasy and I think she was absolutely right I mean it gave that feeling and you could actually even feel it walking past them they were um, in an altered state of connection and probably in some kind of telepathic um, linkage with each other so that's a good point that there's a, 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 a kind of intermediate realm I, yes, I, I wonder, sorry, do you want, do you want to carry on? Well, as you were talking there, it reminded me as well of another debate, which is big and which you've written about and we talked about, which is the area of panpsychism. And um, I've increasingly felt that there's, I mean, there's, there's actually many types of panpsychism, but the one that seems to be dominant at the minute is what you might call a more imminent panpsychism, where um, consciousness is seen to... Um, be part and parcel of um, the natural world. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's in, it wrapped up in what we call matter. Um, and so, um, you know, panpsychists trying to explain how apparently 
um, material stuff can give rise to consciousness. Um, you know, trust, as you put right at the beginning, we trust that we are actually uh, experiencing consciousness, which is no small ask in, for many people these days. But given that we are experiencing consciousness, we're also material beings. So that imminent panpsychism tries to account for that experience. Um, but there's an older panpsychism, which I think is, say, the panpsychism that you would find in, um, say, Plato, maybe even in Whitehead, um, who uh, I know you know more about him than I do, but that sees matter itself being a kind of expression of a wider consciousness. Um, so matter, you might say, is a kind of emanation or a falling out um, from a wider consciousness, which in a theistic frame would ultimately be seen as the mind of God. And then um, that kind of panpsychism um, is maybe more open to a transcendent account of things um, because it sees us as sharing in a much wider life, a much larger intelligence, um, whether that's depicted as a kind of um, a whole ecology of spiritual beings um, or being itself, um, which has these um, qualities of, of communication and sharing and outflowing and so on. And, and, and that panpsychism is not the one that's making um, the running at the minute in more scientific circles, but it's a panpsychism that I actually feel is much more persuasive um, because it's an open system rather than a kind of closed system that still feels like, um, I don't know, a kind of science almost trying to have its cake and eat it, um, which I sort of resist uh, somewhat. Um, I think science is, is pure genius when it sees itself in the service of a much wider reality of which it can understand parts of, um, rather than trying to account for the whole of reality within its own discourse. Yes, I, I agree with that. So the, the motive for a lot of academic panpsychism at the moment in philosophy of mind is to try and explain the hard problem of consciousness in terms of electrons and atoms, etc., uh, having it emerge from material systems. And I know that some of the people in that kind of panpsychist world really see this as a way of saving materialism. Um, Galen Strawson, for example, one of the people who led this new surge of academic panpsychism, um, just says that it is materialism. Um, all you need to do is widen the definition of matter to include consciousness. Um, and so it's a fairly limited form of, 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 of panpsychism because it's, it's just adding in consciousness to the regular material worldview. It has quite a, 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 a number of consequences. For example, many people in religious belief systems think that consciousness can survive bodily death. Um, but if in that kind of limited panpsychism, if you're psyche is just a, an aspect of the material activity of your brain, then clearly it will come to an end when you die. Uh, so it doesn't, that kind of panpsychism is very close to materialism and its practical consequences. Um, but then, as you say, there's a much more inclusive kind of panpsychism where the psyche works through the whole cosmos and, it, um, is, and we're part of something larger than ourselves which could go over into panentheism or pantheism. Um, um, and it's interesting, I think, that in Kripal's book, to come back to it, because we're going to have to wrap up soon, um, 
is uh, he does actually go through the spectrum of panpsychist options. He spells them out, I think, quite well and shows how within the present realm of discourse, there are people who have this much wider panpsychism. In fact, some go as far as full-scale uh, idealism, uh, particularly Bernardo Castrup, who's a computer scientist who underwent a flip in Cologne Cathedral, as he describes in the book, and is now probably one of the most articulate exponents of a kind of scientific version of uh, of a kind of idealism, and which is, I mean, not just panpsychism; it's it's full-blown idealism that mind is is fundamental to everything, and matter is a kind of product of mind. Um, so I think one of the strengths of Kripal's book is that he actually does show there is this range of options. We're entering um, uh, an area of debate where the future directions are not clear and there's no one single direction. So people who undergo a flip out of reductive materialism um, don't find themselves in a, a single new unified vision of the world. They find themselves in a situation where there are quite a number of options for seeing what role consciousness plays and what role it might have to our own lives and to the life of the cosmos as a whole. Yeah, no, I mean, I really like it for that because, you know, sometimes um, in the more hand wavy um, uh, approaches to these questions, it can seem like, oh, we're just all one. There's nothing much more can, that you can say. And, and, and that is deeply frustrating. And because it feels like it collapses life down quite as much as uh, a hugely reductive materialist take on life. Um, but to see that uh, making these steps into, say, asking questions about panpsychism actually opens up a whole new set of questions which might deepen and complexify life, that feels much, much more appealing to me. Um, and, you know, and quite at the end of the book, I remember now he says uh, that these flips um, are almost like you know, nudges or pushes to try and engage more richly and fully with life, um, rather than just being a kind of answer to life. And um, that's the way to treat them. And I, and I very much uh, agree with that. I mean, you feel it in psychotherapeutic work, too, um, where you, um, you know, can be qu quite quickly conscious that you're engaging with things that are certainly um, beyond your own conscious awareness. Um, and uh, having different models to try and develop that um, is both you know, practically useful, but also um, spiritually and intellectually fascinating as well. So we've got sort of slightly mixed sense of the book itself, but um, uh, at least good in parts. I quite like it for its overall approach for introducing this more reflexive understanding of things. Um, but maybe people would like to give it a go. Oh, I definitely think it's worth reading. I think it's a very good um, overview of this whole field. Um, and combined with personal stories and, and the, the fact that this is not just a cultural transition that's going on at the moment in the academic world and outside it, uh, but if that in, in, involves personal transformations as well. And when we undergo these personal transformations from a materialist mechanistic worldview to a, a more panpsychist one, then, um, these have to be woven into the cultural transition because we can't do it in isolation. We're part of a culture. And so I think it documents this cultural change very well. And actually, I agree with you. He's one of the primary people who's documenting it at the moment um, through his 
looking at bizarre experiences like alien abductions through looking at the human potential movement, the history of Esalen, and, uh, and, uh, and then these striking cases like changed in a flash. Yes, so I think it, it's a, it, it is indeed a very important book. Great, well, thanks very much. Thank you, Mark.